Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Raja. Thanks so much for showing us the podcast. Such an honor to have you. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, I would like to ask you first, how would you like to define yourself for the audience? Maybe first time listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? I'm a human being. <laughs> uh, interested in uh, science and uh, specifically uh, I've uh, spent my working life uh, trying to understand what is intelligent, intelligence, or how can you build an intelligent machine, a robot, uh, and uh, what are the consequences of uh, uh, this uh, work, this research that we are uh, doing in, in the field of robotics and artificial intelligence in general. So, of course, uh, science is not in isolation from uh, society, and it's our... Uh, responsibility also to think about uh, the consequences of our scientific research, our results, our uh, and the implications on, on society. Technically, I'm a professor emeritus at Sorbonne University in Paris. Thank you. Thank you uh, for sharing that. But I'm going to ask you, uh, since you have this, all this overwhelming experience already, um, when it comes to robotics, do you think when we come to intelligence or embodied intelligence, do you think we have to invest more in the brain side or the body side when it comes to robotics? Or maybe, yeah, I don't know how do you envision the intelligence in the body of the robot and the brain, so software side or artificial intelligence or machine learning, yeah. Well, I think that you can't separate the body from the brain. Uh, mm -hmm. It's uh, very uh, misleading and uh, uh, unfounded, actually, to think of the brain as if it existed on, existed on its own. Uh, uh, our brain, the, the brain of all uh, living things, uh, the neuron itself, and, and then mm -hmm. the uh, uh, whole uh, neuronal activity, and so the brain, if you, are, if you like, has evolved based on uh, a physical interaction with the world. And this physical interaction comes through the body, through senses, through action. Uh, and uh, the whole uh, thing was motivated by uh, survival and production. So it means uh, you have to really understand what's going on in the environment so that you can survive, and uh, surviving means reproduction. Uh, therefore, uh, asking if we should focus on the brain uh, or on the body is, I think, uh, something which is not uh, going to lead us into the correct answers about what yeah. is intelligence and uh, how to uh, actually address uh, the open problems that we have in, uh, in this domain. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, the uh, connection between, mm, say, thinking or making decisions 
or interpreting the environment uh, or deciding for actions, this is completely intertwined. Uh, it's related. Uh, it has to cope with the reality of the environment, the uncertainties, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, incomplete knowledge that we have, uh, the uh, real-time constraints during which mm -hmm. we have to make we, when I say we, I say now machines <laughs> and not just uh, humans or uh, living beings. Because actually, if you want to build machine that uh, act in the real world, they have to comply with all these uh, constraints. And if you go to body design specifically, of course, body design should be adapted to the environment. I mean, it's uh, clear that if uh, your environment is just water, you need the body of a fish or uh, a uh, uh, body that is able to cope with the flotation and the constraints of the currents, etc. If if you're a a flying or a, a, a robot, it's the same. You have to, to comply with the aerodynamics uh, constraints and you have to have the correct body. If we, you have a, a robot that has to uh, move on land uh, and uh, be efficient, you have uh, either to invent the wheel, <laughs> which means mm -hmm. uh, it's a wheeled robot because this will actually uh, consume less energy or because the uh, environment is uh, uneven, uh, you cannot move easily with wheels, etc. Then uh, you need uh, indeed uh, legs uh, mm -hmm. and, and the shape of the robot itself would have to be adapted to the kind of environment it's, uh, it's facing. And therefore, the control system and the brain <laughs> Uh, has to be able to address uh, the uh, uh, body's constraints as well. So you see, it's always interrelated. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. But I'm just asking you about, since you mentioned that inspiration comes from the body and the brain and how they intertwine each other, how we can push the limits, since we have already nature, it's just trying to be adaptable. But if we come to designing in, in robotics, for example, do you believe that we have to push the capabilities or having uh, more fitness to the environment? I don't know, maybe, I don't know if that makes sense, that we can push beyond what we have already. Do you think that makes sense or we just have to figure out what already have an inspiration from the nature or evolution? Well, of course, fitness is uh, key. Uh, uh, specifically if, if the body and the behavior and decision-making process and the perception and so to the environment, the system is not going to be successful. Uh, but then it's, this, is, uh, this has to take, to take into account that uh, uh, A, the environment might be changing and, and B, we don't want necessarily a system that is fit to one small kind of environment. Uh, we, we would like our system to be able to um, cope with, with uh, variation in the environments uh, so that it has a, um, an action capacity that is, that is wider. Uh, and, and this means, uh, uh, again, a body that is adaptable to uh, a variety of environments. Of course, it cannot necessarily be uh, any kind of environment. 
Uh, and of course, it, this has to imply immediately a capacity for learning and adaptation uh, because the uh, system uh, wouldn't be pre-programmed for any kind of action or any kind of uh, interpretation of, of, of its signals uh, from sensors. Uh, it has to uh, have the capacity to learn uh, to uh, represent uh, its environment uh, according to actually uh, its uh, interest, its tasks, its constraints, and to extract uh, the necessary information from this. Of course, it will have basic knowledge in the beginning, but uh, it, there is uh, unavoidably uh, the necessity of a capacity for learning. Mm -hmm. And learning, of course, uh, is also something in, in itself which is quite complex. Uh, again, we humans have uh, a, a unique capacity for learning. Uh, other uh, living beings have also a lot of uh, learning capacities, but ours is, uh, is quite advanced. Uh, and I don't think that we can reach this uh, very easily uh, with machines uh, nowadays, uh, the capacity of, of learning that we have developed and know about in, uh, in machine learning in general uh, have a lot of limitations. So this is a very open uh, research topic. Again, learning shouldn't be addressed just as data crunching. Uh, it, it has to be addressed in um, conjunction with uh, uh, the objective of the system, the constraints. It, it's not just looking on a lot of data and then trying to make statistics. Uh, it's rather trying to make sense. And making sense is uh, related to the objective of the system, what, it's, what are its actions, uh, what uh, it uh, is motivated to achieve. You don't interpret the same things according to uh, your task or what you are interested in. And uh, in fact, actually the same, the same shape can be interpreted differently according to what you want to do. Uh, for example, you can use a pen to write. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also use it to make noise. Uh, and and uh, it's the same object. So the interpretation about what it is going to be used for is, is related to, to our uh, objectives, to the objective of the machine uh, mm -hmm. in this case. Uh, this is uh, related to the affordance theory, you know, where, uh, which, which is uh, known in, in psychology, uh, Gibson's affordance theory, which uh, uh, tells that uh, um, an object or uh, uh, a, a, any, any anything in, in nature, an object, affords something to the agent. And uh, what it affords depends on the agent objectives. Again, uh, according to what I would like to do, I will uh, perceive the object differently, actually, in terms of, of its uh, mm -hmm. capacities. So again, a system uh, perception, a system vision that, that tells you that everything is connected and, and nothing is preset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess to skew about the, the learning again, frustration of continual learning or how kind of generic 
um, situation? How we can, maybe student curious, what could be the question you think you have to consider that for designing this continual learning? And even when it comes to living system, there is an approach now to use hybrid robotics as well, living with non-living system. I mean, we really have been there. So how do you envision learning in that case to be continually learning to new situation, uncertain environment? So what kind of maybe missing pieces do you think currently when you see the, uh, the field, do you think that's maybe something missing here and we have to give much more focus or attention so that we can reach this goal, this continual learning and being generic and adapting to different uncertain situation? Oh yes, of course, you're right. Continual learning is, is key. Uh, so there's a difference between learning and adaptation mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, uh, the whole uh, issue is, is, is indeed to also not something that, that shouldn't be forgotten is that we have limited capacities. I mean, uh, we human beings, the machines also have limited capacities. Uh, we shouldn't think uh, uh, as if the machine had uh, all the memory uh, uh, of all the uh, uh, computing uh, farms and, and uh, the, uh, all the power that is, uh, is needed, uh, specifically uh, if it's uh, actually a robot, which means a machine that moves and interacts with its environment and not uh, a computer which is sitting and connected maybe to the internet. Even the connection of the internet doesn't mean that you have infinite power, uh, mm -hmm. processing power, and you don't have infinite memory neither. The whole thing is is to be uh, also economically uh, viable in terms of, of those capacities. But, uh, but because this puts some constraints, uh, and when you say continual learning, uh, this means that the system should be always able to learn new things, new actions, uh, improve uh, its behavior based on, for example, reinforcement learning processes. Uh, but at the same time, uh, while doing this, it's not just learning uh, continually, it's uh, compiling this learned knowledge or know-how. Compiling means that uh, when you have learned something, it's stored as a uh, habit, if you wish, mm -hmm. something that you, you do without thinking of it. Uh, you start by learning, and when you learn, you are focusing the attention, the system. When I say you or me or we, I mean the system. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, focusing attention on the task, uh, planning new uh, actions to achieve the goal, uh, so this decision-making process is uh, time and energy consuming. Yeah. Uh, and so the uh, continual learning aspect means that you devote some time and some energy uh, and, and some, of course, computation power and decision-making processes to learn new things. But when they are, once they are learned, uh, they are compiled, they become habits, things that you can trigger and skills, if you wish, that you can mm. use without the same computational power and the same uh, energy. What does this mean? It means that uh, the system uh, has, if you wish, 
a uh, component, uh, a, a system for planning, decision-making, etc., learning to achieve something, learning to interpret something, uh, and which is working continually. And another system uh, which has actually digested that knowledge and which is always doing, always achieving quickly, not taking time, because you need also to react quickly to events, to the dynamics of the environment. And, and this system works based on the knowledge that has been already learned. And this is how it enables the decision-making system to work continually as well, because it, it can still react to the environment. And mm. moving from one system to the other is, is the whole issue. Uh, how, if, if my habits don't work anymore, it means the environment has changed or something has changed. I'm not adapted anymore. I have to learn new things. So this triggers the learning system. Uh, and if I spend my time just learning new things and not be able to understand, to compile, to digest this knowledge, uh, the system won't, won't be successful because it will be always spending too much time and, and uh, it won't be adapted to the environment. So switching from one to the other, inhibiting one of, one mm. of the systems uh, to trigger the other or to let the other um, uh, actually uh, achieve the task is, is key. And this is actually something that is based on context, on mm -hmm. uh, a general understanding of what's going on, uh, which, which uh, has to be very reactive as well at the same time. So I think this is the, the great um, question about how not only you learn continually, uh, not only you uh, uh, um, uh, uh, learn new knowledge and new, new actions and new know-how continually, but also at the same time, I have a much more global understanding about the system which is, um, and the environment and the world, which relates to a kind of meta reasoning uh, on, on what's going on and which shouldn't be, of course, uh, neither time consuming uh, nor going into the details of the decision because the details of the decisions are in the decision system. So, and switching from one to the other uh, part. So okay. it's a question also uh, to uh, conclude, it's a question of the architecture, the cognitive architecture of the system. Uh, uh, it's, it's not just uh, 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 the software system that is working uh, to achieve the results. It's how do you organize the whole system in such a way that it has this capacity. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. But I'm going to ask you, when it comes to maybe roadblocks that you have this kind of cognitive architecture, um, how do you think maybe would be a, a roadblock here so that you can achieve it less computation or in achieving the desired goal? If there's any avoidable trade-offs when it comes to designing the system like that, is this something you can avoid recently? How would I say? The... Uh, uh... It, it is uh, um, vital to, to the system to uh, be able to, to address the, the, the dynamics of the environment. If it's not mm -hmm. capable to do that, it will not be successful. 
uh, and the dynamics of the environment actually will dictate uh, how do you solve this uh, this problem, this issue about uh, uh, energy and time uh, in, in in terms of uh, computation, in terms of uh, uh, decision making. Uh, it, this means that the way you solve the problems will be dictated by the dynamics of the environment. Mm -hmm. if, if you are in an environment which is very, very dynamic, a lot of things are moving, changing all the time, uh, it's, it doesn't make sense and you can't basically plan for the longer term. You have to address the immediate uh, changes and you can only plan locally. So this will reduce automatically uh, the uh, time horizon uh, uh, on, on which you are working. And, and therefore, uh, this will reduce automatically the uh, consumption in terms of decision-making capacities, in terms of uh, uh, energy, et cetera, to make longer-term decisions. You will have only to address short-term decisions, very, very local decisions, if the environment is very dynamic. Is if on the other hand, the environment is static or, or some compromise between uh, statics and dynamics, then, then you can reason for a longer term. You can reason for a horizon which is, which is longer and make longer term decisions, uh, which uh, of course, will maybe consume more energy and and uh, and uh, and time but you have this time actually and but the whole issue is this compromise between the environment dynamics and and the capacity to have a longer time uh, horizon because you need it if you want to be efficient at the long term uh, if you have only a short time horizon you will keep going into uh, deadlocks or uh, into um, dead ends, I mean, and, and situations that, that uh, just get you to, to very local solutions, which is, of course, not efficient neither. But mm. again, it's the environment which will dictate uh, the uh, uh, abilities of the system in this case. Mm -hmm. Great. So I'm curious to ask you about the redundancy or resiliency. In magic scenario, I mean, I don't know if that would have been that damages have been out there in the body or the robot or the brain, whatever, there's something like that happening, damage, or how do you see the redundancy so far when it comes to designing robotics? What, what kind of meat strategies think um, so that we make sure that the robot is resilient when it, there's damages happening to the different environment and adapt to the new situation, to its, its own body or brain? That's, that's a great question, actually, because redundancy is exactly what the brain has. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has it in a very, very complex manner. You know, uh, the plasticity of the brain, its ability to change connections, to find other ways to do the same thing, to replace some senses by other senses. Uh, it's, it's great redundancy, actually. Uh, that we, we don't have in, in, uh, in machines. I mean, we, don't, we are not really able to, to address yet. Uh, of course, it's not necessarily the redundancy of the body because the body is what it is. It is limited. I mean, take uh, a uh, humanoid robot. It has two legs. And if one leg isn't working at all, well, it's difficult to have this robot moving. Uh, mm. uh, and, and the same for human beings, by the way. So uh, 
we have redundancy to some extent uh, in robots, uh, but but um, redundancy is is uh, uh, or resilience because this is what it's about. It's about resilience, and redundancy is just one way uh, to achieve resilience. is is really uh, important. I think what I mentioned before about the capacity to think long term, short term, and also uh, uh, moving to one from one to another is a form actually of resilience. It's a way to achieve mm -hmm. resilience. But another uh, issue with resilience is uh, the fact that <laughs> you have to have the system able to uh, work, continue to work despite uh, some uh, faulty parts. Uh, uh, and 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 resilience is not working optimally necessarily. It's it's maybe degrading a little bit, but degrading in a way that is controlled, uh, that is acceptable uh, to make the system continue to work as much as it can. Uh, so of course we can think about resilience and 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 redundancy in the body, for example. Uh, uh, but again, I see this as ra rather difficult to achieve because it's hardware and the hardware when it's broken it's broken uh, you can't replace it on on, on the um, on the spot except for example if we change the material with which the robots are made today most of the robots are made from plastic and metal and maybe carbon uh, uh, and and some robots are soft robots they can deform uh, this is also a way to uh, address resilience because the body's shape itself can change to adapt to its uh, environment now of course this leads to more research in material science to build those kind and and uh, and, and uh, of bodies and to control them uh, also which which is a more uh, a robotics problem but uh, the uh, soft, soft robots, soft material, uh, or softer, not necessarily completely soft, is also one means to achieve this, uh, this resilience. And uh, the other part is about the architecture, I mean, the control, the software system architecture. This uh, has to attract more attention uh, from researchers, uh, you know, in software engineering in general, when, when you deal with uh, critical systems, which means systems uh, whose uh, uh, errors can lead to catastrophic com consequences, uh, there is a lot, there is a great body of research about uh, resilience, about dependability of those systems, uh, and uh, how do you actually um, conceive the software system with uh, checking the software because it's software let's not forget uh, it's uh, how do you design the software so it has redundancy it has mechanisms for uh, checking it's uh, working it's logical uh, the logical structure the uh, timeliness of the system all these techniques are more or less forgotten in my opinion uh, it's uh, it's important that we um, uh, teach 
uh, our students to, to look on those issues in computer science and computer uh, in software engineering so that uh, what we build in terms of uh, 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 robotics capacities, in terms of robotics software, be it for learning or perception or whatever, is actually uh, designed in a way that uh, is resilient. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing also, we are dealing with systems which are supposed to be more or less autonomous, which means work without any human supervision in this case. Uh, so uh, this uh, raises important uh, problems for, uh, technic for, for technically for uh, approaches which uh, are in uh, uh, closed uh, environment, I mean, closed words, which means everything is pre-predicted, uh, everything uh, falls within a uh, closed uh, uh, number of possibilities. In the real world, if you have a system that is supposed to deal with the real world to address the, the, the challenges of the real world, the environment is open. Things can happen that cannot completely be predicted before. Uh, so just uh, checking if, for example, you have a, uh, a, uh, a tree uh, of, of decisions and it converges to uh, always to uh, a decision wouldn't, wouldn't work uh, completely if the environment is changing. So we, this is why we need more research about uh, redundancy, about uh, resilience in general, dependability in, in open uh, environment, open words, and uh, which which cannot be pre-modeled completely, uh, and, yeah. and uh, the system prepared to uh, address whatever uh, goes wrong uh, in in a systematic manner. Mm, that's a very important point. But I'm going to ask you with this experience when you see that inspiration from evolution. What something is still for you hard to understand? You can how this thing is working. I don't know if you have any kind of sort like that, because you seem to have a lot of experiences. So is there something still hard for you to understand how this is happening or how we can replicate that in machine? If there is anything that inspiring and you, you can understand it? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's another great question. And the answer, uh, my, my, the first thing that comes to my mind is intelligence. We don't understand what it is. Uh, and we uh, have a name for it. Uh, we are great for giving names to things, but uh, even to things that we don't understand. Uh, so uh, when we speak about intelligence, what it is exactly, we don't know. So there are some definitions like, you know, adaptation to the environment, ability to uh, address all the environment constraints, etc. but this is not uh, a sufficient uh, definition because uh, uh, you have a lot of things that are intelligent in this case. And so how do you compare? Uh, it's, uh, is it related to, uh, for example, the uh, uh, information measure, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the measure of information that is circulating in the brain, say? Uh, well, it might be an indication that something is going on there uh, but you might have a lot of activities going on which don't necessarily relate to something that we could call intelligence. So something we are actually 
it's completely undefined. And, and uh, uh, since Turing, we know it's a waste of time to try to define it. To define it. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is why the Turing test is just a comparison with the humans and not uh, a, a mathematical formula of what intelligence is. And how can we uh, distinguish intelligence from uh, uh, other um, things like, you know, I, I would say that the uh, original sin mm. of AI was to neglect the body. You started by asking this question and, and to see uh, intelligence as uh, in separation uh, of, of, uh, of the environment as, as some processes that are going on uh, in, in the software system because it is necessarily going on with software system. Uh, None considering that it is interacting again with the real world. So uh, I think uh, there was a great opportunity that was missed to try to better understand what, what this mystery of so-called intelligence is. But again, like other concepts, uh, it's uh, uh, trying to uh, understand it will not lead necessarily to understand what we think that it is. It will lead us to better understand that maybe it doesn't exist. The, uh, uh, for example, the more and more you get into quantum physics, the more and more you ask questions about the actual physical world, the way that we understand the physical world uh, in in um, uh, in the in the classical physics scale is completely different uh, from the way we understand it in in the quantum physics scale. So, and and the quantum physics scales tells us actually. What you think you understand in, in the classical physics scales doesn't exist. It's just a, a kind of uh, uh, illusion or perception of, of the word, which is quite uh, actually efficient and, and it works because we, we live in this space, uh, but, but it's not what you think. And so maybe intelligence is the same thing. It's not what we think. It's, mm -hmm. uh, and, and there is nothing called intelligence. It's... Uh, uh, there are a lot of phenomena that, that are going on to uh, make a, uh, an agent uh, able to uh, act in, in, in its environment, uh, but it's not something that ah, this is intelligent and you, you can pinpoint it and say, well, yeah. intelligence is blah, 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 blah. No, mm -hmm. uh, but this remains the question. How, how can we, how do we, uh, uh, build a machine that is able to uh, achieve these uh, uh, the, this capacity that we call intelligence. And mm -hmm. so one point which I think is is important, and uh, which which is not asked any a question which is not asked anymore so much. Uh, you know, all computers were are based on the Turing machine model. Uh, and the Turing machine model is basically uh, a model that says that computers can only run algorithms. An algorithm is uh, 
a set of instructions actually that you are going to follow uh, the machine is going to follow to uh, take some data transform it and provide some other data uh, as an output and some algorithm are immediate are written by humans and and uh, uh, classically executed by computers and some other so-called algorithms are actually the result of a learning process, which means, for example, when you have a deep learning model, uh, the model has done the same thing. It's, it's a kind of algorithm that has um, uh, taken data and produced um, uh, values of the synaptic weights, whatever, uh, that are going to be then used later on to uh, process new data. So the algorithm is this model that you have obtained, but you didn't program it line by line as you program classically an algorithm. It remains an algorithm. It remains an algorithm. So the question, since this algorithm and other algorithms are running on the Turing machine, the question is, is the brain, the natural brain, uh, amenable to a Turing machine? Uh, it's uh, note that all the models, I mean, the computational models of the brain that we have uh, are very limited, are, are usually specifically addressing some parts of the brain, some connected neurons. Uh, we have the formal neuron, which is quite far from the natural neuron model. Um, and uh, uh, what is uh, rather neglected in, in, in research, it's, it's neglected because it's tough actually, is to try to see how much the global architecture of the brain fits with this, with this model. What, if there are other phenomena, phenomena that are going on in, uh, in the brain, in the natural brain, uh, that, not, that are not amenable to an algorithm or a set of algorithms that are just being executed, uh, even if maybe you can pinpoint some parts which are, yes, amenable to algorithms. So you see the whole is not the same as the sum of the parts and uh, the uh, uh, way that the whole works is related to other kinds of uh, connections, other kinds of interactions than uh, the specific uh, parts. If ever we can model the specific parts as, as algorithms. We have a lot to learn yet about what's going on in, in the uh, human brain and the natural brain in general in all the architecture of its, uh, of its parts. And the question that it would be, uh, um, amenable to a Turing machine is for me an open question. It's, it's not, it's a hypothesis, it's, it's a thesis. It's not, it wasn't demonstrated. Uh, uh, however, a lot of people do or behave as if it was the case. Well, because we only have computers, <laughs> we have only computers and it's all the whole thing that we can use to simulate the brain or to uh, try to build these intelligent machines. But there might be other kinds of architectures than the uh, basic algorithm executing method uh, 
that that are yet to to be to be uh, um, invented. Uh, all the theories about uh, uh, the the uh, I would say systematic execution of an of an algorithm mm -hmm. uh, are uh, for the moment satisfactory in achieving a lot of tasks, but they are far from actually simulating what's happening in the brain. And, and uh, I think we should devote a little bit more attention on changing mm -hmm. those, or, I mean, uh, on, on inventing or finding new architectures, different architectures that might uh, better uh, be suited to, to uh, uh, simulate what the brain is doing. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot. I think that's a very interesting uh, part. But I'm curious to ask you, based on your experience in working robotics in general, at any moment do you have something um, you thought should work in a certain way or expect this behavior for a robot? But it was when you tried to deploy it in, in reality, it was counterintuitive or surprising. Do you have any moment like that with surprising how this happened? This is really counterintuitive to what I thought. Do you have any moment like that? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, this. Uh, actually, this is when uh, you ask the good questions. <laughs> this is this moment is is uh, uh, actually I wish everyone has his, this moment uh, or or many times this moment because this is where you discover that you weren't actually addressing the right problem or you weren't uh, having the the right uh, uh, knowledge and and this is where you get the intuition that aha. Uh -huh, something else has to be done. So let me give you one simple example, mm -hmm. a very simple example that uh, 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 actually dates back to, uh, uh, to, to when I have achieved my thesis uh, mm -hmm. back in the early 80s, actually in 81. Uh, uh, I, my, my, my thesis was about mobile robot navigation. Uh, so we are in 1980, late 70s, 80, early 80, uh, a lot of attention was devoted to manufacturing in robotics. Uh, very little attention was uh, on, on mobile robotics at that time. A very, you can count the mobile robots in the world <laughs> uh, on, on your uh, fingers. Uh, and of course, today, this is impossible. Uh, but but uh, just to tell you that it was a stream of research that wasn't so much, so much uh, active yet. Uh, what's the difference? Well, in manufacturing, you have to have a good control uh, system. You have to have a, a very fast and accurate motion of, uh, of the robot to, for example, pick things in, in a bin or to achieve some uh, painting or soldering and, and follow it very, very precisely. Well, a mobile robot is just acting in the real world and, and trying to avoid obstacles and to go from point A to point B at that time uh, with very poor perception. Uh, it was the beginning of laser range finders. Uh, uh, cameras were uh, uh, large like a show box, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, of course you didn't live that time, but uh, uh, I mean, specifically, technically, it, it, was, it was very, very different, different from today. Uh, but my, in my work, uh, my, my, my job was to find uh, how to 
uh, indeed navigate in this world and, and avoid obstacles and move from one point to the other. So it was the time where you have, you, we came up, we as a research committee came up with algorithms for uh, motion planning, uh, for representation of the environment, uh, for uh, obstacle avoidance, etc. And the uh, point is that you needed to navigate in the environment uh, to build a model of this environment to find out where the robot can move uh, uh, in the free space. So you have to, the first intuition is to represent free space and not the obstacles because this is where the robot is going to move. And, and then to uh, find a path, you have to have some structure uh, of this free space to represent it in terms of a graph, for example, and then uh, compute your path. And then you execute it. Uh, you have a path, you execute it. And what happens? Well, the robot moves and you're very happy and uh, uh, it uh, uh, goes around the first obstacle and you are very happy. Then it goes around the second obstacle, hmm, but very close actually, almost touching it. And, and you start to ask questions and then it hits the third obstacle instead of going as planned in a different direction. So of course, this is quite uh, disturbing and uh, non-intuitive because on paper and in the algorithm, everything was okay. What, was, what went wrong? Mm. What went wrong is that we completely forgot or didn't take into account that the real world is uncertain that any sensor measurement you do uh, with a camera or even with a ultrasonic sensor, which was also the reign of ultrasonic sensors, uh, or even with the simple laser range finder, which was beginning to exist, has uncertainties in it. Uh, we completely forgot that when the wheel turns, uh, it uh, sometimes uh, skids. Uh, slips. So the robot isn't actually perceiving exactly the environment as it is. Mm -hmm. It isn't actually uh, moving along the trajectory that has been computed. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, uh, we have to revise this uh, uh, paradigm and, and try to uh, understand what to do about it. How do we take the uncertainties into account. And this led to a very immense problem because, and this, is, this problem came to be known later and, uh, and, uh, as SLAM, Simultaneous Localization and Mapping. And uh, I, I had a paper in, in 1985 describe, it wasn't named SLAM at that moment. Uh, mm -hmm. it, the name came, came later. Uh, it was uh, more about uh, locali navigation, localization, mapping, etc. And the, the basic idea here was that if you want to um, uh, uh, move to somewhere, you have to map the environment. Uh, and, then, and then you move. But when you move, the robot has made some 
uh, ha has some errors on its localization because it's it slipped, etc. So the sensors are not where you think they are. And when it perceives the new parts of the environment which weren't perceived initially, and you want to build a global model because you need that to have a consistent way to, to plan your, your uh, motion, uh, you, you uh, find out that you have to take into account the uncertainties of the perception and the uncertainties of the motion, and that uh, you need the localization of the robot to build the global map, uh, but uh, uh, at the same time, you cannot localize the robot unless you have a map. So the two mm -hmm. problems are, again, uh, related and uh, intertwined. And you have to address them as one unique problem, which is simultaneous localization and mapping. And this is how simultaneous localization and mapping was born, actually, because your robot didn't behave the way you expected it to behave. And it hit obstacles, whereas it shouldn't have hit obstacles. Uh, uh, and this is at uh, this moment uh, saying, well, we have to take uncertainties into account in the whole computation system and do this on the sensors and on the action part at the same time. For me, it was uh, a great moment. What could be the most important quality you think at the research when you have this problem and asking the right question? You have this rich experience in the field. So how do you figure out the right question for a student, early researcher, right question? and the, how to make the problem, because sometimes it's hard to ask the right question. Well, I think the hard question uh, probably will be discovered, uh, not predefined. I mean, you can, you can mm. uh, uh, ask a, a question or define a, a problem more or less globally, uh, but, but by trying to achieve this, you will discover the hard question. Uh, I see a lot of projects coming and saying we are going to address research question one, research question two, research question three. Mm -hmm. That's nice on paper. Actually, when you start working on your research questions, you will find out that you have to reformulate those questions permanently, actually. It's, it's not the way you perceived things before. And and this is why I think it's important to not be prisoner of your initial research question. You have to, uh, a, a, for example, a thesis, uh, uh, someone working on a PhD has to keep in mind a PhD is not a, a linear project. And I see a lot of PhD programs now asking to provide a plan, a timeline, a Gantt, uh, that the first six months you do this and the second six months, six months you do this, etc. I've never seen a PhD project achieved this way. Why are we keeping this nonsense that you have to make plans uh, on the PhD project? Uh, actually, even plans on buildings, on, on, on building uh, uh, buildings are not going this way, when you have to, to build a home, there are always things that are not planned, right? But, but specifically for research, you are going to discover along uh, your work that, oh, I should look into this and I should look into that. 
it won't fit with your initial program. Um, and and the, the, the great thing in, in research is the freedom to be able to address the questions, the issues that come up and, and to uh, get away from the initial questions that were formed as if we knew how to answer them. Uh, so I think the, the, actual, the actual research questions come up while you are looking for the solution. Uh, getting back to the slam question, uh, you, you can say, well, I'm going to ignore those uncertainties because I don't have time. I have to uh, finish this at this time. Well, basically you wouldn't have achieved your objective. <laughs> it's impossible. Uh, you have to identify the problems, etc. So be open. Uh, you can take those initial research questions as, as a framework, but, but then what actually you're going to do, it's, uh, it depends on how things will be discovered. You know, you, you need uh, many, many generals and politicians said so the following thing. So I don't know to whom I can attribute it. I can attribute it to Napoleon because uh, in 2021, uh, it's the uh, anniversary of his death in 1821. Uh, so now uh, it was 5th of May uh, and in France we are talking about it. So uh, he said, uh, no battle plan works, but you need one. Oh, that's... Uh... That's really profound. Uh, I, 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 I deeply appreciate this point. I do lastly, if you have any advice you have ever um, received during career uh, and was a life changing, do you have a, any advice you have received uh, during career and was a life changing for you? Or stick to your mind? Uh, an advice actually uh, that I can pass is uh, something I, I have uh, uh, just. Uh, mentioned more or less is is this uh, uh, capacity to uh, mm. keep some freedom in your thinking uh, the the advice is to avoid to be uh, completely enclosed in a, uh, a method in a uh, uh, an approach, one has to be open uh, and, and to keep the ability to uh, understand what the others are saying, what the others are discovering. Uh, you know, you, we have in science, we have a lot of controversy, a lot of controversy because people think differently. Be open to the others. Maybe they are not always right, but maybe they are right on some points. So keep your mind open and and uh, that's very important. Listen to the others. Uh, mm -hmm. They might be wrong. They might be right. But listen, and and yeah. and try to understand. Uh, you might change your mind. And this freedom also of, I would say, freedom from our own limitations, understanding what the others are, are doing to better uh, think our, ourselves is is really important. And, and we are, not, again, things are not linear, not simple. Uh, so we have to approach them with an open mind. Thanks so much, Professor Raj. I think that's very wise and very interesting. I, I give the appreciate your time. It's very 
very uh, honoring to have you in the Voskos. Thank you. Thank you, Antje, for your time. Thank you very much.